Well, one day, Jesus and his disciples are traveling through Palestine. Palestine is composed of three major regions. There is Galilee in the north, Judea in the south, and right in the middle is Samaria. Now, something that you should know is that back then, Samaria was considered the bad part of town. No Jew wanted to go there. In the days of Jesus, Jews and Samaritans did not like each other at all. They did not associate. They were fierce rivals. Uh, We get a sense of this in verse 9, which says, Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. A simple but final statement. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Uh, And so we're no more than a few lines into the story when we find something really odd. Jesus and his disciples are traveling through Samaria. They are going into the bad part of town. In the days of Jesus, if a traveler wanted to go from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north, which Jesus often did and is doing right here in the story, he wouldn't take the shortest, most direct route. Because the shortest, most direct route would take you through Samaria, where you didn't want to go. Instead, this person would take the long way around. And when I say long, I really mean long way around. First, he would go to the Jordan River, head east, and he would cross the Jordan, which is no small thing, and then he would head north through the wasteland of Perea, and then he'd cross the Jordan River again, going from east to west, and then finally, he'd arrive in Galilee. It was a long, circuitous route. It was inconvenient. It cost much in time and energy and money, but it was all worth it. Because at least then you could avoid Samaria and the people who lived there. You could avoid the bad part of town. Well, as Jesus travels, the sun is intense, the temperature is high, the road is unpaved, and the going tough. And so after a few hours, Jesus and his disciples are ready for a break. The disciples go to a nearby town to get rations, while Jesus takes a rest by an old watering hole. Now, friends, if you have to drive through the bad part of town, that's exactly what you do. You drive through. For heaven's sake, you don't stop. But Jesus not only stops in the bad part of town, he gets out of the car and he walks up to a lunch counter, as it were, by himself. He sits by a well. It's the sixth hour of the day or high noon. The time is ripe for a confrontation. Along comes a woman. She comes to the well to fetch some water. Now, people, of course, needed water to cook and clean and bathe. And every day, the women were sent to fetch water from wells. They walked by foot, sometimes over great distance. They strained their backs, bringing water out of the well. They filled these large earthen jars and carried them all the way home, usually on their hips or on their shoulders. It was very hard work. And because it was such hard work, They went to the well in the morning or evening to avoid the extreme heat of the day. No one went to the well in the middle of the day at high noon. So this is odd right here. This woman is at the well in the blazing heat of the day. And what's more, this isn't even the closest well to her house. Archaeological research has shown that there were sources of water closer to her village than this well in Sychar. 
The particular well to which she goes is out of her way. It's like she's driving all the way to the next town to buy beer. This woman is going to fetch water at an odd time, at an odd place. It seems like she's trying to avoid people. But why? Why would she want to avoid people? Well, whatever the reason, her hopes of avoiding people are dashed because when she gets to the well, there is someone there, Jesus. And to her great surprise, he speaks to her. In this culture, it was inappropriate for a man to speak to a woman who was not his wife. That was considered forward. Uh, so this conversation would have not just been curious, it, it would have been you know, kind of borderline scandalous. Uh, we get a sense of this in verse 27. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, though no one dared to say, why are you talking with her? But there's more. Uh, this is not only a woman, this is a woman of questionable character. She's been married five times already, and she's now living with a man who is not her husband, out of wedlock. Uh, in her time, in her village, folks would have known her relationship history, and they would have held her in low esteem. Uh, they would have gossiped and whispered, insulted and embarrassed her. Uh, this woman's reputation would have followed her around wherever she went. And so now we see, now we see why she went to an out-of-the-way well, a distant well at high noon, and why she wanted to avoid people. Make no mistake about it, by speaking to a Samaritan, especially a Samaritan woman, especially a Samaritan woman of questionable character, Jesus is breaking some very important social norms. Now, one might look at this and think that Jesus has no idea what he's doing. But oh, to the contrary, he knows precisely what he's doing. He is building bridges and breaking down walls between people. Jesus takes the initiative to speak to a Samaritan woman, an astonishing break from culture and tradition. He takes a risk. He sticks his neck out for her. Biblical scholar Dale Bruner writes, Jesus went to great lengths and took serious risks to reach the Samaritan woman. Such is his desire to save the lost. Jesus knows everything about this woman. He's recounted her entire history. He can see to the very bottom of her soul, and he sees that this woman has a deep need. It's even deeper than her body's thirst for water. It is her soul's thirst for God. The woman has come to the well to get water for the day, but she's going to leave with enough water for the rest of her life and all eternity. Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I give will never be thirsty. The water that I give will become in them a spring of water, welling, gushing up to eternal life. Biblical scholar William Barclay writes, at the heart of this text is a fundamental truth. In the human heart is a thirst that only Christ can satisfy. In each of us, there is a nameless, unsatisfied longing, a, a vague discontent. We are never far from the longing for eternity which God has placed in the human soul. There is a thirst which only Jesus 
can quench. In the city of El Alto, Bolivia, lives a young woman named Fiona. Now when Fiona was just a little girl, her parents died, and Fiona was sent to live with a relative, but he, an alcoholic, abused her, and he abused her in the worst possible way. For years, Fiona endured repeated and terrible abuse, so finally, at the age of 12, she ran away from home. She escaped the house and went into the streets of the big bad city. Now, how bad are things at home when a little girl looks out the window and says, that is better than this? But it was out of the frying pan and into the fire for Fiona because Fiona had no education. Even as a teenager, she couldn't write her own name. And so to cover her basic needs, her basic human needs of food and shelter and clothing, she joined a brothel. Fiona worked as a prostitute in the brothels of the city. Sadly, the abuse that she wanted to escape followed her around. From time to time, she would try to leave the brothel by uh, leaving with a client to be his novia, his girlfriend. Uh, But those men only abused her as well. She tried to work as a housemaid, but the patriarch of the house where she worked raped her. Fiona felt like her best chance of survival, her best choice in life, was to always go back to the brothels. Her heart was broken and her life was filled with disappointment until, until one day Fiona met a friend of mine, a friend of mine named Alicia. Alicia and I became friends here in Nashville when we were attending the same church with a ministry called Word Made Flesh. And that's a line from the opening of the book of John. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. With a ministry called Word Made Flesh, Alicia traveled to Bolivia as a missionary. And in their work, Alicia and her colleagues would literally go into the bad parts of town, to the brothels, and befriend the women there. So slowly over time, they would form friendship and and build trust. And so when the women were ready to escape prostitution, they went to Alicia and her colleagues. When Fiona sought refuge at Word Made Flesh, she got food and shelter and medical care, uh, mental health counseling and spiritual nourishment. Uh, She received education. Though as a teenager she couldn't write her own name, she worked her way to a high school diploma. She received vocational training and got job skills. She became a seamstress, a leather worker, an artisan of fine character. Uh, Now Fiona and others like her make clothing and jewelry and wallets and purses that people would be jealous to have. Just as Jesus went to great lengths and took serious risks to reach the Samaritan woman, Alicia went to great lengths and took serious risks to reach Fiona and others like her. And so they have gone from a life of sexual exploitation to a life of fruitful independence, from brokenness to wholeness. You know, I think this is so, so interesting. The Gospel of John, I think, must be trying to tell us something. Uh, Last week, we read from the book of John, chapter 3. And this week, we read from the book of John, chapter 4. And in these two chapters, we meet two people 
Nicodemus and the woman at the well. Two weeks, two chapters, two people, and they couldn't be more different. He's a man, she's a woman, he's an Israelite, she's a Samaritan, he is highly educated, she is most likely illiterate, he is a Pharisee, a fine, upstanding citizen. He prays and fasts and tithes. He does more than me. He's a moral paragon. She's a person of suspicious moral character. He is respected by everyone in society. She is a lonely outcast held in low esteem. He is a person of means with financial independence. Her only hope of survival in a cruel, cruel world is to give herself to all these different men. Two weeks, two chapters, two people from two totally different worlds. Nicodemus and the woman at the well have nothing in common but this. They both need Jesus. They are different in every way but one. They both need a savior. Friends, the gospel is for everyone. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous. No, not one. Friends, the gospel is for everyone because everyone needs a savior. It's not just the poor and abused woman. It's also the rich and privileged man. It's not just the Samaritan. It's also the Jew. It's not just the immoral person who needs Jesus but the quote-unquote moral person as well. Often the moral person, because of his morality and relative goodness, deceives himself into thinking that he doesn't need Jesus, when in fact, in truth, he absolutely does. Nicodemus and the woman at the well have nothing in common but this. They both need Jesus. And when they meet Jesus, their lives are changed forever. I think it's so interesting that when we meet Nicodemus for the first time in the book of John, it's John chapter 3, uh, Nicodemus goes to Jesus under cover of night. It's the equivalent of the woman at the well going to the well in the middle of the day. Uh, so Nicodemus goes to meet Jesus at the nighttime and is told, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. That's the first time we meet Nicodemus, but it's not the last, not the last time that we meet Nicodemus in the book of John. The last time we meet Nicodemus in the book of John, it's at the cross. Jesus has been crucified. Along with Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus takes Jesus' body and gives it a dignified burial. Jesus' body could have been left to the vultures or other scavengers. It could have been tossed unceremoniously into uh, a mass grave. But Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate to ask for the body, while Nicodemus brings the embalming supplies. He brings 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe, things used to prepare a body for burial. Pope Benedict XVI said, the quantity of balm is extraordinary. It exceeds all normal proportions. This is a royal burial. Now, don't forget, don't forget that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. 
And don't forget that Jesus and the Pharisees often clashed. And don't forget that the two had an uneasy relationship, that the Pharisees played no small role in Jesus' death. But after Jesus' death, Nicodemus doesn't dance on the man's grave. No, he cares for the man's remains. Nicodemus gives a dignified, even kingly burial to one who opposed his party. Nicodemus broke from his own party to show a final kindness to a man who changed his life. Having met Jesus, Nicodemus was never the same. And the same could be said about the woman at the well. When the woman at the well meets Jesus, she carries this heavy, earthen jar which she hopes to fill up with water that's the whole point of her being there but after meeting Jesus what does she do I love it verse 28 says leaving her water jar she runs to tell others about Jesus she becomes a messenger a missionary an evangelist she puts her water jar down she leaves it right there and she runs to be a witness that there is a prophet in our midst i love those words leaving her water jar the woman drops everything to tell everyone about jesus she sheds anything that'll keep her from running at speed but there's a second more basic, more elementary reason why she leaves her water jar. She simply doesn't need it anymore. She no longer needs it because she's gotten a taste, a sip of living water, and she's found that what Jesus says is true. Whoever drinks of the water I give will never be thirsty again. A couple of weeks ago, I saw the news that the Borden Dairy Company had filed for bankruptcy. Now, I found this to be sad, but it, it made me think of a story from its rich history. The Borden Dairy Company used to be the largest name in milk, and how many people drink milk or consume dairy products? I mean, basically everybody. It, it all began with Gail Borden, who in the 1800s invented the first successful commercial method of condensing milk. Now, this allowed dairy products to be preserved for long periods and, and shipped over hundreds of miles. This revolutionized the entire food industry. It boosted the American economy, and it made the Borden family exceedingly rich. William Borden, a grandson of Gail Borden, was a bright young man. Uh, he went to high school in Chicago, graduated at age 16. When he graduated from, his, from high school, his parents um, sent him on a trip around the world as his graduation gift. When he got back from that trip, he enrolled in Yale University, had a very successful career there. So when he graduated from Yale, he had all these job offers that were very high paying. Now, William Borden was already a rich young man. He was an heir to the Borden family fortune. He was a literal millionaire. And friends, this is not uh, earning potential over his lifetime. This is cash in hand as a young man in his early 20s. Uh, being a millionaire and greater, that's something today. That's nice, but imagine what it meant back in 1909. But instead of going into business, 
William Borden went to Princeton Theological Seminary. William Borden sensed a call to Christian ministry, to Christian missionary work. He wanted to take the gospel to people who had never heard it. Now, his decision was not without controversy or opposition. Uh, people thought that he was crazy. Uh, one of his friends lamented that he was throwing himself away as a missionary. His own father told him that he would never have a position in the family business. It was tantamount to disowning his son. Still, William Borden donated his vast fortune to Christian ministry. He gave it all up. He turned his back on a life of comfort and ease for a very hard life of missionary work in some anonymous part of the world. When he graduated from seminary, his mission work was set to begin. The first place he went was Egypt on the first leg of a missionary journey. There in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis, and within a few weeks, at the age of 25, he died. His mother came to him to bury his body, and when she got there, she found his Bible. She opened the Bible and found three phrases that were inscribed inside the cover. On the date he renounced his fortune to pursue missionary work, he wrote, no reserves. I'm holding nothing back, giving it all up. On the date that his father told him that he would never hold a position in the family business, he wrote, no retreat. I'm not changing my mind. And shortly before he died in Egypt, he wrote, no regrets. I would do it all the same. No reserves, no retreat, no regrets. William Borden left everything to pursue Jesus. He left his water jar right there on the ground and ran to tell others. He put down his golden milk jug. He didn't need it anymore. He had gotten a taste of living water and he knew that he would never thirst again. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.